If you're tired of dieting and stepping on the scale, you're lacking energy and confidence, and you're ready to harness your inner athlete, then you're in the right place. I'm Sherry Shaban, and in each episode, I'll help you to rebuild your fitness identity and empower your deepest transformation so that health and fitness are not just what you do, but who you are. What's up, athletes? Welcome back to the show. On today's episode of Fall in Love with Fitness, we are speaking with Dr. Ashley White, who is a family and emergency medicine doctor by training. Dr. Ashley is also a developer of a signature methodology, which is called responsive eating, that helps facilitate appetite literacy so that people in larger bodies can unlearn push back against and liberate themselves from diet culture. I'm so excited to meet with you, Dr. Ashley. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Oh, I'm so excited you're here. So first, before we begin, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and how you got into this work. For sure. The My involvement in the space of health and wellness um, predates my involvement in medicine. So like you, I was an athlete in high school. I was a varsity athlete. Um, I did not have a life altering accident. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. But I was always someone who is really into movement. Um, but I was also a very big person. So I became six feet tall by the time I was about 11. And I was close to 200 pounds for most of my adolescence and early life. And I grew up in a small town. And so it was very clear to me, it was made clear to me that my body was different than a lot of other people's. And so people commented on my body a lot. Um, Oh, wow, you're so big. Oh, my goodness. You know, do you play basketball? Yada, yada. And just a sense of like, whoa, she takes up a lot of space. (laughs) And so I always felt oh, I take up a lot of space in addition to being a bit opinionated and and loud. So um, I, of course, entered into university and I um, was a member of the varsity rowing team. And I actually started losing some weight for the first time in my life, um, even though I had actually started dieting when I was 12 uh, because I was responding and internalizing these ideas about, oh, you're too big, right? And when we are too big, the culture we live in suggests that we should diet. And so I did, I did what a good girl does. And then, um, but never actually lost any weight for reasons that we'll probably get into later. And then became an athlete and was, was exercising like for performance, which is a bit of a different kind of movement, as you know, and lost quite a bit of weight and actually experienced a great deal of external validation from people who uh, didn't know me. Uh, And so I experienced acceptance in the culture um, in a way that I had never experienced before. I didn't actually know that that was around. So all of a sudden, people who never wanted to speak with me before or acknowledge my presence, all of a sudden, I was relevant. And that was very, um, you know, addicting. Like, I really enjoyed that I was accepted, right? I didn't frame it in these terms. I didn't understand it like that. But I, I was. And that begot more of the same and I actually lost a lot of weight and I became very ill with anorexia nervosa and it was through recovery from that in my 20s and prior to becoming a physician where I happened upon ideas about you know dieting being one of the ways that women experience oppression and one of the ways that women are told to contain themselves and to live smaller lives And that was infuriating to me and I felt like I had been conned. Uh, And then 
through medical training and my recovery, gaining a lot of weight and gained about 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden was confronted with all of a sudden not being accepted or not, not really necessarily fitting in again and being very big on rotations. And, and medicine is a, is a space where people in larger bodies are often you know, persistently rejected, including amongst each other. I actually, after my first pregnancy, enrolled in a medical weight management program with a physician in Canada who shared with me new insights about my weight and new insights about the genetic basis of my weight and my body. And I started undergoing a different kind of therapy and I've rolled with that and I've rooted it in the, the guideline, the Canadian guidelines for the treatment of obesity, but I've also rooted my work in my whole life and the experience of my family as a family that is uh, large and matching the work on the culture with the work on myself. And that's where it all started. Wow. Right. So one thing you said is that your first diet was at the age of 12, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what happens at that age? What, what was a circumstance in which you felt that you needed to go on a diet? And then even just being in at that age, at such a young age, how, mm -hmm. how did you, how did your parents even accept that? Yeah, my parents were also part of the culture. And so they, you know, took me to Weight Watchers because they were on diets too. That's what we did. My mom frequently referenced that after she had my brother and I, she lost weight on Weight Watchers. And my father had been dieting since I began, I had awareness. Mm -hmm. So, and like he was always speaking with his siblings about his diet. And um, there was always an awareness that if you weren't trying to lose weight, then what were you trying to do? Right. So it was really part of how we occupied ourselves. It was in the water for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them for that. I actually recognize that that's part of the context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So what was that, that initial trigger for you mm -hmm. then at that age to, to want to go on a diet? Well, I felt that, you know, I started to become interested in boys and I was clearly not that was not reciprocal <laughs> because I was so much bigger than so many of them. And this was the nineties and there was definitely, um, a look, right. Uh, that wasn't powerful and wasn't strong. And it's not like it is now where there's a lot of sort of an array of bodies, even though there's still a lot of problems, obviously. So I felt like I was simply too big and my job was to not be so big even though I didn't know how little control over that I actually had. Right, right. So mm -hmm. you mentioned a little bit earlier that you, you, were, you were attempting several times to release mm -hmm. weight and then it never kind of worked for you and there was a reason why. So what was that reason? Yeah, so I definitely think emotional eating or eating from a place of, I, I describe it as big eating, mm -hmm. so and a lot of wanting. So I, later in life, of course, uh, much, much later than I would have liked, was diagnosed with ADHD. And there is a lot of overlap between the experience of ADHD and the experience of being in a larger body because what happens is we assign salience or meaning to food to help focus and to help borrow dopamine for thinking uh, from food. And I didn't know this, but my father has ADHD, my brother does, and, and so did I, but I was very high functioning. And so I used food to allow me to focus. So I would come home from school and I would study, but I would always be eating. And I didn't acknowledge this, or nor did anyone around me, as problematic um, because I was succeeding, 
right? And I, I was large, but my weight wasn't going up and it wasn't really going down throughout my adolescence. It just kind of stayed around 200 pounds. But on a six foot tall frame where I was quite active and fit. And so I didn't realize that I was borrowing focus from food. And that's what I was doing. And so then of course you hit university and I was high performing then as an academic and I'm still doing that. And so all of these additional molecules of energy helped me cope and think and function. And by then it was such a deeply ingrained pattern that I actually felt really unable to sit at a computer and study without some sort of snack. And that habit stayed with me for decades. Uh, no one ever thought to look to consider this diagnosis in me, obviously. And I'm not sure that it wouldn't have happened anyway. But by then, the behavioral patterning is so positively reinforced that I actually feel like it's hard for me to sit down in the absence of food to do so. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so where are you now in terms of that particular habit? Do you still find yourself needing to to focus in that way and to, to find I that find myself out? wanting to. And this is where this paradigm of acceptance mm -hmm. and radical self-acceptance comes in. So my brain is wired differently than the brains of other people, mm -hmm. as is the case for many people. And so what I have realized is that when I'm experiencing a great deal of wanting, there's usually a reason. There's usually a sleeplessness. There's usually a feeling of, oh, I don't want to do the work that I have to sit down and do. <laughs> um, or there's a feeling of, oh, I'll break this habit another day. And so now I try to move through those episodes of wanting with a simple acknowledgement that this is my wiring. I'm not broken. It's my wiring. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've been aided with some pharmacology, of course. Um, I'm, I'm pregnant and I'm, I'm not on any medication at the moment. But there have been times where I've used medication to help me with my processing. Um, and, and that's helped improve my quality of life and my performance. And that's because that's how my brain works. It's not for everyone. Um, it's a personalized approach is required. So where I'm at now is trying to model for my daughter, who's two and a half and who's showing remarkably similar tendencies to me, um, to, to simply pause and to accept and to not use food to fill space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love that. And, and especially it's that reminder as, as we have kids that, you know, kids don't do what we say, they do what we do, right? So it's so, it's so important to be mindful of that, that ki the, our kids are constantly modeling our behavior. And especially when we do have girls, and as you mentioned earlier, for whatever reason, diet culture tells us to be less than, we should be smaller, almost almost not exist, right? And so another thing that you kind of mentioned as well around diet culture is this tendency to label food, right? And then therefore mm. labeling ourselves as well. Well, this is mm. good food, this is bad food, and I'm good because I, I ate the good food or I didn't allow myself to eat the bad stuff. And then I'm bad when I have the bad stuff. So I would imagine that this is also a part of your process, right? Overcoming those those connections and those labels. And and maybe now is a great time to tap into that process. So first mm -hmm. of all, before we get into that, what is appetite literacy for those that are listening? Mm -hmm. So appetite literacy is one of the core skills that we work on before we actually approach responsive eating as a system, our mind system. Um, appetite literacy is about being able to read your appetite from chew to chew and we can decide, make decisions about whether we are hungry or whether we are wanting. And when we are hungry, how do we respond to that? 
And then when we are wanting, how do we respond to that? Mm -hmm. And when we want to change what we do when we eat because of wanting, mm -hmm. how do we do that? Because that's hard, right? Um, one piece of this, of course, is acknowledging that about 30% of the appetite is subject to conscious control, although we often spend that time in automatic mode. So even though we can influence our choices using our executive mind, we often choose not to. We eat the same way all the time and, and simply believe that what we're doing is probably fine. A lot of my patients had no idea that the amount of food that they would ate at certain times meant what it meant. Um, and, and that's just about the awareness of it. Um, and then uh, appetite literacy is about acknowledging that because there's only this 30% and we can wake it up, there's this other 70% that's actually not necessarily subject to our awareness. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we can help influence that is through proper sleep, movement, because exercise is really, really helpful for decision-making and calming the beast of wanting. <laughs> um, and uh, medicine, sometimes bariatric surgery can also do this in some people. Uh, therapy, uh, coaching. So I integrate a lot of coaching concepts into my work. And we can tackle um, appetite literacy over time in practice. And it's really about labeling your current state are you experiencing hunger? Are you experiencing fullness? Are you experiencing wanting? Are you experiencing satisfaction? What does that mean for you? And we build out an inventory of cues that are cognitive, emotional, and physical to help clarify where we are. Right. And then we bring that experience into an analysis of our current state, which is hunger or wanting. And then part of that is developing um, a different terminology for good and bad foods. And we use the, I use the concept of highly rewarding and satisfying foods. Notice that there is no sort of judgment with either of those terms. Uh, so satisfying foods are often foods that meet our nutritional needs and often abate hunger and allow us to feel full nice and long. And these foods can range. They're, they're very person-dependent, culture-dependent, context-dependent. Mm -hmm. Highly rewarding foods are foods that satisfy wanting. Mm -hmm. They are foods that we pursue with anticipation and with craving. They are foods that, for which we experience a lot of pleasure. Um, and they are foods that very much come from that subconscious wanting space. Mm -hmm. And so by breaking up this good-bad food paradigm and moving into a more evidence-based paradigm and new language, we can offer ourselves choices. Highly rewarding foods are, are not bad. You can eat them. You're welcome to. Mm -hmm. It's just important to recognize that you are seeking reward. That's all. Right, right. So, okay, my question, this mm. wanting, is this something that's within us already, right? We're, I'm a mom as well. And so I noticed that when my kids were, you know, little babies and they wanted food, they cried. And then when mm. they got their milk and then they were full, they stopped crying. So mm -hmm. I feel that we are, we're born with sort of this reptilian brain that asks for food. And once, once we've gotten our food and we're satisfied, then, then that's it. It gets turned off. So when does that wanting come in? Right. So you are completely correct. And the ki kids have this on-off phase. But then there are lots of kids for whom, you know, they're six months old and they're not sleeping through the night because they're waking up saying, mom, <laughs> they're not, they're screaming, obviously. And that's because they're wanting, 
They are they have associated food with mom, with odor, with um, the experience of comfort and touch, and that's wanting. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that our species has become so effective at at you know propagating is because we can map the wanting experience onto the hunger experience. Mm -hmm. So if we did not have such a profound drive to go and eat, we probably would not exist. Mm -hmm. So babies learn from a very very young age that with my food, I get my mom. With my food, I get my dad. And there's a connection. So we, we intentionally double down on this connection of feeding being a safe and loving space which creates those powerful pathways. Mm-hmm. When we look at the science of feeding and we look at moms who have um, opiate addictions and they're, they have babies and they're born, historically, these babies were taken away in the NICU and they required high doses of opiates to help wean them down. And they were often very agitated. And then, um, but a lot of times hospitals would prevent these babies from being with mom because they needed special monitoring or because of mom's circumstances. When hospitals shifted to actually moving those babes into the rooms with moms and just having the contact with mom, even if mom wasn't breastfeeding, the the amount of, of opiates required by those babies went way down. Mm-hmm. So these babies were given dopamine by the experience of closeness to their moms, mm-hmm. even if their moms were not well people. And it is that closeness that most describes the mapping of hunger and wanting to each other, which is why when we say to ourselves, oh, I wish I wasn't such a big eater. I wish I didn't want so much. We're saying, I wish I wasn't alive so much. Mm-hmm. And this is why I describe my appetite as my superpower, mm-hmm. because it is this big wanting that defines why I have lived my life the way that I have. There have been problems, don't don't get me wrong, but my wanting and my pursuit and my drive comes from the fact that I have a well-defined broad appetite. This has historically been conceived of as a problem and I believe it's actually part of who I am. Right, right. Wow, so well said, I love that. So when the when the wanting becomes out of control, let's say Mm -hmm. we link that now with emotional eating is that correct Mm -hmm. yeah yeah emotional eating i call it big eating Mm -hmm. it can be in the literature it's described as like uncontrolled eating binge eating Mm -hmm. emotional eating um i call overeating i just call it big eating Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah and it makes sense and oftentimes we we emotionally eat because we're trying to fulfill a particular need right there's mm-hmm. a void there's something there that that we're wanting so that actually makes a lot of sense that you're bringing that together right mm. and it's um <clears throat> this this wanting experience is something that can be um like switched from context and subject so that's why people after bariatric surgery, we actually see an increase in number of people who develop alcohol addiction mm-hmm. um, because their wanting has been, uh, you know, the subject of the wanting has moved. But oftentimes we, you know, in our world, we like blame flour, we blame sugar, we blame the subject of the wanting as opposed to examining the wanting mm-hmm. and acknowledging that there is value to this wanting and that spending our time resisting the wanting is going to crash and burn. And so if we allow ourselves to accept wanting as kind of part of being alive, then it will settle. 
And one of the reasons that diet culture is so problematic and that dieting causes weight gain is because the ability to self-regulate and accept some present moment discomfort is impaired by dieting Mm -hmm. Um, because dieting is really takes people away from the direction of their values. It makes them feel incompetent. It makes them feel constrained as opposed to saying, listen, you have permission to eat whatever you want, but let's examine what you eat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all. Mm -hmm. And to acknowledge that sometimes it's coming from a place that isn't about food at all. And that's okay. And that's normal. But how can we let that pass? Wow, thank you so much for normalizing this. I, I love this conversation so, so okay. much. And so responsive eating then is that ability to sort of get a hold of that that wanting, is that correct? It's just a way to talk yourself through it in the moment so that like you can go to a picnic or like a party or some event that would normally stoke a lot of big eating mm-hmm. and big wanting. You can gently like walk yourself through it step by step, moment by moment, without anyone knowing. Mm -hmm. You know, the hardest thing about dieting for me was like showing up at a social event and people would be like, so what are you eating these days? Um, You know, and because there were times when I was a raw foodist, there were times when I was vegan. There were times when I would like only eat chicken on Tuesdays. It was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was exhausting to people around me and I get it. I totally get it. So now, and it was like shameful because I was like, oh, I realize I'm, a, I'm an agent of the culture. I know that. But I'm trying to figure out what to do with this body. And I'm trying to just, just understand that. And I'm also trying to figure out what to do with this appetite, even when I was in a smaller body. Um, and I'm in a smaller-ish pregnant body now. Um, when I was in a body that was relatively normalized, <clears throat> I was still always trying to figure out what to do with my appetite. Because sometimes I would still be very preoccupied with food in these social contexts. And and so th- no matter what size I was, the navigating that was difficult, which is why my program is for people in, in big with bigger appetites and bigger bodies. Mm-hmm. So responsive eating is like a package of thoughts that you can walk through each experience with and help coach yourself through it. Because you can't have someone coach you there in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And also because of my tendency to need things to be pretty quick and easy to do. The work that I do has to be in here because I'm probably going to forget my keys and I'm going to forget my phone and I'm going to forget my iPod. I just, I'm a forgetter. So if it's in here, I can't forget it. (laughs) Yeah. So walk us through what's what this process would look like. And I know you have for our listeners, you have a little yeah. uh, mini course to offer them in the end. So that's really awesome. But yeah, walk yeah. us through a little bit of your program. Yeah. So um, essentially, we I don't call them meals or snacks. I call them eating experiences because sometimes life is just complicated. So you approach an eating experience and you try to figure out where you are. Are you hungry? Or are you wanting? Mm-hmm. If you're hungry, do you have something satisfying available to you? great. If you do, consider yourself given permission to eat. And then we build in a couple pauses throughout. Um, And then as you approach fullness, try to acknowledge that fullness by using those little beats and giving yourself those little pops of time. And then as you feel yourself moving into wanting, you then can acknowledge, oh, I'm in wanting now. So I'm eating for some other thing that is not fullness. Mm -hmm. And that's also okay, right? So we never say that's bad or good. It's Mm -hmm. actually, it just is. Mm -hmm. And so as we move into wanting, we have to make decisions about whether or not we're going to keep eating. 
or whether or not we're going to move into a different experience. And so if we decide to continue eating, okay, well, what would tip the balance? What would support that decision? And that's where we really look at values. So the work actually begins with a definition of values. That's like the first module. Mm-hmm. And then once we get into deciding if we're going to continue eating into wanting, then we have to decide, is this consistent with what I want for my life, right? Big time, like big goals, little goals, all these things. And a lot of people come with the goal of, oh, I just want to be healthier. And we, we clarify that and we get deeper on that because health is really just instrumental. It's a means to an end. Why do you want to be healthy is the question. And so people then learn to make decisions that are either consistent with their values or they give themselves permission to keep eating into wanting in a way that is not values aligned. And that's okay, right? And sometimes like if you're at a picnic and it's like the best food on earth made by your favorite people, you're gonna eat into wanting. It's just like fine, it's okay, right? And that may be consistent with your value of community and family and just back to that idea that like we're allowed to celebrate food. (laughs) And then we can then invite ourselves to step out of the eating experience, knowing that we can start again at any time. There are no rules. And then you step out and then you go through a process of trying to evaluate, okay, well, what was that meal like for me in terms of my comfort, my mobility, and my energy? Mm-hmm. So it's not a food diary. It's a body experience diary. Mm-hmm. And in, in, my, in my, my full course, you get like 21 tools that help navigate top to bottom this whole process. And so you can build out this like very reflective experience using the, the program. And so you then decide, okay, well, I ate pretty deeply into wanting. It is what it is. Okay. But my energy, comfort, and mobility demonstrated the following for me. Mm-hmm. Like, looks like I actually did fine. And one meal is not going to take me off my pedestal, right? Of course not. And then when we eat in a way that is inconsistent with our values, and, and really just like, it's a big eating experience. It's like, it's like a big thing. And it's like really not in line with your values. How do you use the tools of acceptance and resilience to just let that go? Mm-hmm. And not turn that into days and days and weeks and weeks of big wanting eating. Mm-hmm. Because that's one of the issues with dieting is that they don't actually show you what to do when things don't go right. And then it's not fine because you're a human in the world and it's crazy times right now mm-hmm. and and then there but then you're left without resilience mm-hmm. for how to be like okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna bounce back from this mm-hmm. and so we end with resilience and that's also consistent with the canadian obesity guidelines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and and you know on that note and, and a lot of times when we are following this diet and it didn't work for us then there's something wrong with us because it should have worked mm. if followed it it would have worked right so it's clearly you right you just got to try harder. That's it. Got to try harder next time, you know, really make sure you didn't have those whatever at night. Um, all right. So one of my greatest questions, I think, for you is let's say somebody's been, you know, dieting for a very long time. And, you know, in that in that process, in that cycle of binge eating and really not really knowing where that fullness is, how how can a person tell whether they are hungry and their body is actually hungry and needing food versus going through that pattern, that cycle of the wanting? Right. And knowing that sometimes the brain maps wanting onto hunger, I call it wanting wearing the hunger costume. (laughs) 
and sometimes it goes the other way as well. So when you have been dieting for a long time, hunger can be hard to figure out mm -hmm. because your body's used to, like you've just developed the ability to ignore certain cues, right? Mm -hmm. So for some people, the only way they know to eat is because they are cued to eat in certain contexts. They're cued to eat at lunchtime. Like if they're a teacher, they're cued to eat when the bell rings, mm -hmm. right? Or lots of people are only cued to eat at night when they're alone finally. And they really don't have any desire to eat until they're alone. And then they eat a lot. Mm -hmm. And they and, and that's distressing for them. And then they wake up not hungry. And then the sort of cycle continues. So for anyone who has dieted for a long time, hunger is hard to read. And that's okay, right? It's okay. Um, so then we, we really just focus on, okay, well, what what happened the last time that you felt extremely full? And we build backwards. Okay, so if you're really not sure what hunger is, what's fullness for you? Mm -hmm. And then usually we can use that to figure out what hunger is. Okay, so that's one thing. Then we start figuring out what wanting is. And a lot of people have no clue that they're different and no clue that they feel different. So we have to really parse through some meal experiences to clarify like when when wanting is actually the dominant experience. Mm -hmm. For some people, the only way they know to eat is because of wanting. Mm. Really. Right. Um, and that's fine. It's part of it's part of the narrative of growing up at the time that we've grown up, really. Mm -hmm. So um this is a process of building out an inventory of cues and listening in a way that a lot of people have not listened in the past. Mm -hmm. Because they just thought, well, I'm broken, so why listen to me? I'll just go on keto. And then, you know, a lot of people experience a real suppression of of hunger with keto. Um, the, there are some real concerns for me metabolically with long-term keto. Um, and then they also, I also found, because I, of course I did keto, obviously, because I did everything. Um, I also found that my wanting on times when I was, because uh, I combined it with intermittent fasting as as per the instructions. <laughs> um, my wanting was more powerful than it had ever been. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I could get through the day without eating, but then I, I would get home and I'd be like, okay, your fast is over. And I would like literally be un insatiable because I was so wanting because I, I do eat a lot from wanting because of, you know, all sorts of reasons. My neuro, my neuro context, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like wanting is, is magnified when there is that sense of scarcity that's placed because of a diet, right? To your point, I can't have carbs or I can only have five, five percent of my calories coming from carbs, right? And everything else is fat. So I do this. And at first it's, it's good. I'm super motivated. It's been three, four days. And now I see some weight loss. But now this is going on and on. And now I realize, wait a minute, I actually can't have carbs if I want to stay like this. And so because I can't have something, now this builds up that reward system in the brain, right? I can't have this. And so there is a scarcity. And now that wanting, that desire to have that thing increases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then pair that with just being in a low glycemic state. Because yes. the brain requires some glucose. So as you're, as you're liberating glucose from your body through ketosis mm -hmm. for your brain, um, you, your brain will be like, whoa, what is happening? And that is highly influential on your experience of wanting, as you say. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, I mean, not to demonize the keto diet entirely, I, I think it has its place. It was first created for people um, who suffered from epilepsy. And I think that's the difference, right? 
if we are becoming restrictive because we're trying to release weight, that's that's sort of a, a different pattern that is created in the brain as I'm trying to eat this way because I have a health issue and mm. I my health issues is managed by eating this way. And so what I've noticed is, is again, when, when that ultimate goal is to release weight and now we're demonizing food because this food is responsible to me, you know, getting bigger, as you mentioned earlier, the, the flour, the sugar, all of these things, then that's where it starts to create that sense of scarcity and then increase that sort of desire of wanting and then binge eating and then, you know, finding yourself eating alone when no one's there and, you know, having this, this emotional turmoil around it. Totally. And it's, my goal is to address the emotional turmoil right because if we actually spent imagine i mean do you have a daughter i do i have two girls yeah so i have one girl and imagine imagine never having to worry about whether your girls will consider dieting Mm -hmm. and devoting even one second of their energy to it that's the world i want to create for my girl I'm with because you. so my I'm six feet tall my husband's six six my daughter is going to be a very big girl mm-hmm. and there she's going to receive messages just like I did mm-hmm. and I want her to be able to say nah I reject that I just want her to know intuitively that that's bullcrap mm-hmm. and that's the world mm-hmm. that we're looking at because if women in particular but all people then all of a sudden felt free from having to be on the be you know the job of losing weight wasn't just another job imagine what they would actually do at their own job imagine the glass ceilings they would break if they weren't subject to appearance uh constriction that's the world right that's the one that's the one and it's Mm -hmm. amazing that that you say that because i only imagine i don't know what percent you think but i would say at least 80 90 percent of women spend most of their time dieting or thinking about dieting or thinking about their size or thinking about their body and what it should be like and in constant comparison with others whether that's people they know around them or in on you know social media etc but I don't know if it's the same for for men, but this is just my own observation, right? The majority of women spend most of their life dieting. Yes, and and that's part of the currency of connection, right? They diet together, they bond over dieting. I have, I know people in their eighties who are dieting, right? And I'm like, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, and what's what is the point? Um, you know, do I invite you to eat with awareness? And may that involve, uh, you know, changing the composition and the size and portion of what you eat? Oh, sure. Yeah. Because there, sometimes we're dealing with real metabolic urgency, right? And we're dealing with reversible disease and we're, we're dealing with, you know, lifestyle diseases, uh, essentially. And so we do have some medical imperative to, to look at that. Mm-hmm. But if I believe dieting was the way, I would recommend it. Mm-hmm. I know it is not. Yeah, and and you're right. Certainly, there are more men um, subject to this kind of experience. Certainly, certainly, gay men are are experiencing high amounts of body dysmorphia and high amounts of body consciousness. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would say that appearance related thoughts are pervasive, and we use this subject in acceptance and commitment therapy. We use something called self as context, and so imagine you're a fish and you're swimming in the ocean or the sea or whatever and you know you don't know you're in an ocean because you're a fish and then one day you jump and you think oh 
there's a whole other way out there, you know? And then you jump back in the ocean and you're like, oh, this feels wet, <laughs> you know? And so realizing that those thoughts are, are part of the culture and you have a choice as to whether or not you believe them is part of the growing and maturing that I invite people to do mm-hmm. in the work that we do. Because how, how wonderful if you could just be like, hey, I'm a fish. And I, I know that a lot of this wetness is just, it's just, it's like what's being told to me. It's not real, right? And, and that would be so liberating, even if you had to keep swimming in the water because you're a fish, mm-hmm. right? So I still live in diet culture. I still have thoughts that are retrograde. I still have thoughts about my appearance. Of course I do, right? But I don't let them dictate my distress and I don't let them dictate my experience of my life mm-hmm. because it's not worth it, to be honest. That is so powerful, Dr. Ashley. And I I absolutely love this conversation and I feel like we oh. could keep talking about it. And it's so important. And you know, just as a coach and I've been doing what I'm doing for over 20 years, I'll tell you that athletes come in different shapes and sizes and it has absolutely nothing to do with their appearance. And you kind of started off the conversation saying, you know, you were focused on performance and that's really what it's all about is focusing on performance and becoming that person. And then really looking at food in a way of it being energy currency. And there is that desire to want and it's, and that's also okay. And I love that the whole entire time, there was a constant validation of it's okay. Like it's okay. There's nothing wrong with us. We're not broken. Right. But diet culture does tell us that we're broken and that we should constantly be looking to improve ourselves and change ourselves. And so once we come to that place of peace within ourselves and just realize that I am how I am and nobody should ever have a right to have an influence on me or tell me that I should change my looks in any way. And there's an expectation on that. I think that's definitely a message that we must all share. So thank you for this work that you do. And the extension of that is if we are going to accept these varied experiences, Mm -hmm. we are going to accept that people are are going to come in different sizes. And that says nothing about their health. And it says nothing about their ability to perform. And you know this. I bet you've seen some really amazing athletes in different kinds of bodies. Yeah. Yeah, You know. Amazing. So... If somebody wanted to get access to that course, I think you have a little free mini course for people to check out. That's really, really um, very, very nice of you to, to offer today. Where could they go to to get that? Yeah, so just go to drashleywhite.com and then you just sign up there and you can tell me like any questions you may have. Submit the form, you'll get automatic access. Uh, and then I go live on Instagram Facebook every Monday at four o'clock for 20 minutes. So you can just shoot me a, an email clinic at drashleywhite.com or message me and I'll take your question and you don't have to come on camera, but I'll take it. Awesome. And as you know, I'm pretty much an open book. So I think it's important that we, we lead by example here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you, um, you know, sign up for the mini course, you'll have an opportunity to upgrade to the full course as desired. Um, and you know, Hopefully that serves you. Amazing. And to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where can our audience go? It's at Dr. Ashley White. So drashleywhite.com or just Dr. Ashley White. All right. We're going to add all of these to the show notes. So thank you so much, Ashley, for your time today. I appreciate it. That was it. awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was cool to connect. Yeah, yeah. really great. I think we'll have to do this again. Mm, we'd love that. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall in Love with Fitness. Whether you're already on your fitness journey or just getting started, we're in this together. Just head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review, and you'll be entered into the drawing to win my six-week transformation course. Then go to fallinlovewithfitness.com and get your free gift from me so you get back your energy and reinvigorate your life. Join me on the next episode, and remember, you are an inspiration.